0: A podcast that explores the logic behind physiological birth practices and is a production of the Indie Birth Association and indiebirth.com. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event.
1: All right, hi everybody. Welcome to well, actually, a podcast with me, Margot Blackstone. I uh, am excited to have another guest on today, and this is one I'm especially excited about, talking about something we have not talked about on the podcast yet, which is sort of surprising. So I'm going to introduce you to Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. Thank you for being here today with me.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Wow. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll tell them a little bit about you before we hop in. Um, Lisa is the author of The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility, and I have a copy of the book sitting here next to me, which I have very much enjoyed reading in the last week or so, and Lisa is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. So, pretty much, you're a rock star, huh? At <laughs> all
0: thank you when you're listening to your own bio it sounds like a huge mouthful
1: <laughs> yeah I'm sure um yeah I'm super pumped uh Marin and I got the request from you to maybe hop on and talk about these amazingly important topics and I jumped at the chance um I have been at least loosely following you for as long as you've been doing the podcast wow yeah. and awesome. uh and fertility awareness was kind of the way that I actually got into midwifery and all things like holistic health. It was my entry point. So, so I'm really excited to have you here. You're a wealth of knowledge and I can't wait to see what we talk about.
0: I love that. I love that it was your entryway into, into midwifery. As you can imagine, at some point I considered if that would be the career path. <laughs> <for me. laughs>
1: anyway, I bet it all, it all connects. Um, So yeah, I guess to start off, I wanted to see if you could sum up for us this idea that's the central sort of tenet of the book, which is that ovulation and healthy cycles should be regarded as a vital sign. And if you can just talk a little bit about what that means. Obviously, you talk about it for, you know, most of the pages as well, (laughs) in the book. But,
0: yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think... Really and truly, it's tr- trying to get at a lot of the myths that were taught about our bodies and to correct some information and just in general to have us start thinking about our menstrual cycles as an important part of our physiology as a biological woman with a menstrual cycle. And so the it, it's, it's almost like a direct challenge to the current medical paradigm, And you'll notice I spend a lot of time in the book talking about birth control because it kind of gives us the sense of what happens when we suppress our cycles. Uh, But essentially, the current myth or paradigm around the menstrual cycle, it, it suggests that really it's only important for us to ovulate and have menstrual cycles when we're trying to have babies. And outside of that small window of time in our lives when we're trying to build our families, the idea is that it doesn't really matter if we're cycling or not. And that idea really sets the stage for essentially a lifetime uh, on hormonal birth control where it's really common and not to, it's not to say that no one should use birth control or anything. It's just to open up the conversation. It sets the stage for women to be on birth control for a lifetime and to really just not really think about our menstrual cycles or that they're important. So, in the book, I'm arguing that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign because, so in my case, I've been teaching women to chart their menstrual cycles for almost 20 years. And I've been charting my own menstrual cycles for about as long. And when you do that and you start to see the menstrual cycle and literally track your, like the total length, your periods, your cervical mucus production, all these different things, what happens is you start to see that A woman's health whether it's kind of day-to-day stress levels or day-to-day specific events or specific endocrine issues like thyroid disorders or um, other endocrine dysfunction or you know you can kind of list a number of different health issues uh, what you start to notice is that the menstrual cycle is affected by these different factors and it changes in response to whatever's happening in your life and essentially your cycle is always reflecting back to you your overall health and when you start to realize that and you and you start to realize that for example you know if a woman stops menstruating so if a woman stops ovulating and stops menstruating uh an example of that is in the case of hypothalamic amenorrhea where you Uh, You know, we typically think of the situation of an athlete who's over-exercising, undernourished, so not getting enough energy uh, in to offset the deficit or under a great deal amount of stress or a combination of those three factors who stops menstruating. In our culture, we kind of recognize that as an issue. (laughs) Uh, But typically, the medical fields, the way that it's addressed is often just to put a woman on birth control and what's interesting about the example of hypothalamic amenorrhea and the reason why I often refer to that when describing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign is because if a woman loses her period it's a sign of a really big problem essentially her body is it does not your it's a combination of over exercise undernutrition stress and essentially your body is stopping you from ovulating and stopping you from menstruating to conserve energy as a way to preserve your life because yeah. Uh, you know, our fertility is important for health, but overall, it's not necessary, like for survival. <laughs> so if, there, if your body's under a great deal of duress, it will kind of shut that off as a way to uh, conserve energy. And That's we'll- a that could be like
1: super dangerous for your health.
0: Well, absolutely, because for instance, when a woman loses her period, when she stops menstruating, her she rapidly begins to lose bone mass and is, you know, the longer that it lasts, she's at a lifetime risk, greater risk of developing osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the menstrual cycle, typically we just think about it in respect to our ability to have children, obviously. We don't think about it in terms of our bone health or our breast health or um, just overall, even our, our heart health or our, we don't think that it could be affecting all these different factors but it does and part of uh, one of the analogies that i that i use when i describe this is you know if i were to go to a car dealership and buy Wanting to buy a car, I could choose to put in the AC or not. And if I put in the AC or if I don't put in the AC, the engine works the same because a car is a machine that human beings have created and these parts kind of are sold separately. But with regards to our menstrual cycle, we kind of have this idea like it doesn't really matter and it's not really integral for our health. But we're not machines and therefore, um, if you can wrap your head around that, then we can recognize that the menstrual cycle is actually a central part. Of our physiology as women. Um, Our menstrual cycle is how we produce hormones. We produce estrogen as we approach ovulation. We produce progesterone, you know, between our ovulation and our next period. And if you, you know, if our period and our menstrual cycle and ovulation is how we're making hormones, and if we have hormone receptors all throughout our body, and if these uh, hormones and the receptors, if they can contribute to all kinds of different health concerns outside of our ability to reproduce only then can we really recognize how important it is for women of reproductive age to have healthy menstrual cycles.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Um, And I was just going to add too, it's like not only are these things so not only is our cycle so important for our overall health as you so eloquently have just explained. um, I feel like one of the barriers in our culture is that, it's not even just ignored. It's sort of like considered a nuisance, you know, like especially I remember probably in my later teen years when they came out with like the first pill where you, you know, were allowed to skip the, the sugar pills. Um, and you could only, you know, you only would have to get your period, which as you talk about in the book, isn't actually a period. Um, Four times a year. Was it seasonal or something? Was yeah. maybe of it. And I remember thinking, like, oh man, that'd be so fantastic as you know, like a gymnast who. And I totally was someone who was an over exerciser who lost my cycle for a while in my teen years. Um, yeah, so it's just so amazing that we have we have a long way to go, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, and what's really interesting about you know just the concept of. Um, us being at a place now where the pill producers are making pills and suggesting that we, you know, don't need periods and all of that. Uh, When the pill was first developed, the initial design didn't have a withdrawal bleed. And uh, when I was researching for the book, it was the stories. It's kind of interesting. So it's hard, I think, for a modern woman in, you know, 2019, as we're recording this, uh, to think about what it would have been like in the fifties for women. And so as I'm as I was reading, you know, these doctors, some of these doctors were really trying to to help women sort out their fertility because, um, you know, there, imagine a woman, there was an example of a woman in one of the books that I was reading, who was 30 years old, she already had eight children, she didn't want to have any more. And her option was a hysterectomy, really. the the doctors from a medical standpoint they didn't really have a lot of options for women and so that was part of the motivation um just to give women some power in their ability to to make decisions so when they first the first iteration of the pill there was no withdrawal bleed and so and it was interesting because some of the women that they were testing this on had been trying to get pregnant so it was almost as though they were trying to kind of restart their cycles so you would have these women they would take this pill and then they would stop getting their periods and in, like literally thought that they were pregnant. And because there was no precedent for this, because this is like the late 50s, <laughs> um, there had been no pill. And so before that, your period just came and there was no way to stop it, really, unless you were actually ill um, or if went through menopause or were breastfeeding, etc., yeah no matter what the doctors tried to explain to them and they couldn't they like when the women realized that they weren't pregnant many of these women actually were devastated because they were trying to get pregnant they wanted to be pregnant so um so then that's what when the pill was designed that kind of those series of events led to adding in the withdrawal bleed Mm -hmm. and so now there's a lot of different articles I'm sure you've kind of heard the buzz around it so it's almost like now like the drug companies are admitting that, you know, we don't really need to have the the pill break bleed because it's not a period. So now they're kind of embracing it because it isn't a period. It's a withdrawal bleed. Um, I mean, I think a, most women realize that just the thought of not actually bleeding for years on end feels kind of like, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit right. I think with most women, I mean, from the, like, yeah, periods are considered and talked about negatively and a hassle, but I think on some level for most of us, when you hear like, So I'm just going to never bleed. (laughs) It kind of feels a little weird. So I don't know how I feel about the idea of totally getting rid of the withdrawal bleed entirely. I I honestly don't necessarily feel comfortable with that, but I can recognize that it's not a period. And technically it's not actually, technically it's not medically necessary from that standpoint.
1: Right. Yeah. That was one of the most fast. I think that was the part I dog eared the most. The history of the pill stopped um and that yeah that the fake menstrual bleed was added to make it like a more palatable option for women yeah that's so fascinating
0: well and what's interesting about it as well is that the fake menstrual bleed was intended to make women think that they were still getting their period so from the beginning there was never there was never like a, a a proper discussion about how okay it's not your period you know, this pill is suppressing ovulation, so it's preventing you from ovulating, and it's, you know, it's also thinning out your endometrial lining and, um, you know, filling your cervix with a thick mucus plug to prevent, like, so there's these three main ways that it's preventing you from getting pregnant, but, by, you know, make no mistake, you're not actually having a cycle anymore. And so that was the co- that conversation never happened. So to this day, you know, the majority of women on the pill believe that they get their period, and they believe that the pill regulates their period and all that kind of stuff. Um, what they don't realize is because the pill is suppressing ovulation, and est- the estrogen and progestins in the pill are not the same as the hormones we create, because you can't patent those. have to make money right in order and legitimately in order to make money they have to change the chemical structure of these hormones so that they can own them and sell them (laughs) and so you know you're we we just talked about how in order to make hormones our main ovarian hormones we have to ovulate and that's why the menstrual cycle is important for health when you suppress the menstrual cycle and you stop making those hormones that's when you have a lot of different problems that can arise. And when you look at the roster of side effects of hormonal birth control from anxiety and depression to low libido to painful sex to nutrient depletion to, um, you know, how it affects your potential choice of a, a mate, all these different things, that's far outside of our ability to reproduce. It's only then can you really recognize, wait a minute, (laughs) the menstrual cycle is about more than just um, reproduction. If by stopping it, you can cause all of these, you know, unrelated side effects that just seem to be kind of random. Like, how could it affect all of these different things?
1: Yeah. The other one that jumped out at me was that it, uh, that hormonal contraceptives can shrink the clitoris and surrounding vulvar vulvar tissues. Yeah. Yeah, there's that.
0: Uh, So, I mean, it's interesting when you look at the research. I think what struck me was that there's so much research (laughs) uh, about hormonal birth control and all of the different side effects. And so, you know, in the one particular study that I cited, they did give women the pill. um, Well, it was, I'm trying to remember exactly. It might have been... The, the ring, but it was a combined oral contraceptive preparation containing the synthetic estrogen, synthetic progestin combination. And all of the study participants that they looked at experienced clitoral shrinkage. And the so the actual clitoris shrunk by an average of 20% that's an average so that means some women had more and less and they also looked at the vulvar tissues so in particular the opening of like the vaginal opening itself in particular uh was thinner Mm -hmm. and and that you know based on what the uh the information in the study i mean one of the side effects And the word side effect almost implies that some women would experience it and some women don't. So there's certain effects that happen on birth control, certain physiological changes that happen to all women. And then how that plays out is different. So not every woman is going to have painful sex or identify that she's got really low libido, but all women across the board uh, are going to experience a significant drop in testosterone, more than 50%. And so these changes to your physical, you know, vulvar tissues, clitoris, vaginal opening are related to the drop in testosterone because these tissues are very sensitive to the hormones that we produce. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, it's 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 pretty ter- terrifying. But then, again, I mean, there's a running joke that one of the reasons why the pill is so effective is because you don't want sex anymore. Now, every woman doesn't have that experience to the same degree, you know, if you, if you talk to a lot of different women. But if you talk to quite a bit of women and you realize that this low libido thing is quite common. A lot of women talk about that, how either they, you know, and the this, this scary part is that a lot of women start on the pill when they're 15, Or fourteen, and I know when I was fourteen, I wasn't really aware of what my libido was like yet, and so then it sets the stage for women having low libido and not knowing that it's low, and thinking they just don't really like sex that much. And at some point, when they come off of it in the future, surprise, like, whoa, I actually do have a sex drive, and that's a really common response you hear from a lot of women.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, The other thing I found really fascinating and I was reminded of as you were talking is this other piece of like, you know, not just how it affects us physiologically, but like out in the world, like you had said, um, you know, it affects the way that we interact with potential mates or the example you gave of um, the women who work in strip clubs and making more money when they're um, actually having a regular cycle as opposed to being on hormonal contraceptives. I thought it was just so interesting because I'm sure there's a million other even more subtle ways, you know, that it plays out beyond those examples that, um, you know, when we think about just is really astounding. And I think terrifying is a good word to <laughs>
0: yes I would I would definitely agree I mean so I've I think a lot of us have heard that idea and potentially read an article or something like that about how you know the pill could potentially affect mate choice and a lot of women when they're coming off the pill are scared you know am I gonna you know hate the, the way my partner smells now things like that so when I looked into it I I didn't really anticipate how much research there was that was another this is a theme but there's an entire field of environmental biology, essentially, that is looking into this. And so the technical term is the major histocompatibility complex. And basically, our, the way that our genetics are is reflected, so our genes, it's reflected in the way that we smell to others. So there's two parts of it. One is how I perceive my partner's scent. And another one is how I actually smell <laughs> to my partner. Right. And so um, so part of it is within your ability, but then part of it's out of your control because how people perceive you is out of your control. And so what was interesting is that they've done studies. And so there's different you know ways they've looked at it. They've done t- T-shirt studies where they'll have people wear T-shirts and then have women kind of pick the ones that they smell, that they prefer. And then they'll have other studies where you know they'll have women choose based on the actual physical features of the person and so it's kind of controversial because these studies are very gendered so it's often it's not always man woman but it's often man woman right so i just put that out there because when i'm speaking about it i just want to know want you know the listeners to know that i'm relaying the information not necessarily making Uh, judgments around gender but what the studies show uh, the truth is stranger than fiction is that when you're taking hormonal birth control you're more likely to be attracted to a a partner based on their scent who is more similar to you from a genetic standpoint and again controversial controversial thing to talk about because there are studies that would suggest that if you are more similar genetically you are potentially more likely to have difficulties um, getting pregnant. From a statistical standpoint, you know, Uh, and then also women who were on uh, birth control were were more likely. So there were these, it's kind of strange, there were these studies where they would feminize the faces of men. And you could see the pictures of the men in the studies, like they would actually do things to make their faces look more feminine. And so women were more likely to choose men that just had more feminine um, characteristics so I'll just leave that there and you can kind of interpret that how you will but what it boils down to is that it's changing how we perceive scent and that is one of the ways that we would naturally select a mate and so for women who meet their partner while they're on birth control then it's possible that when they come off at some point in the future they might actually it, so, I mean, there's stories of that. I give an example in the book of a woman who met her partner on birth control, uh, eventually went off of it and really wasn't attracted to him anymore a, and ended up uh, breaking up with him. Uh, and then there's women who meet their partner first and then they go on the pill. Well, that's a little bit different because they actually did meet their partner when their olfactory <laughs> senses were operating normally. Um, and then on the flip side, so like the the stripper study that you mentioned uh was an interesting study that we're looking at it because this is looking at the reverse effect the question that the researchers were asking is uh it's about what they call um what's the word for it competitive advantage (laughs) so they're trying to determine if women who are cycling naturally and ovulating have a competitive advantage compared to women who are not so you had some of the women who were on birth control some of them who were ovulating naturally and it Again, st- truth is stranger than fiction, because in this study, their measure was the tips. And so women who were cycling naturally, they would get make more money around ovulation. <laughs> and I mean, there's a lot of research around how uh, men respond. So on the flip side, the, the studies show that men are more likely to be attracted to women during that period of time. And they're even more likely to appreciate the sound of their voice more. Mm-hmm which around ovulation yeah so these women when they were ovulating would make more money they would make a little bit less money around menstruation but the overall and then the women who were on the pill they just there was no change they it was a constant amount there was no like big fluctuation but for the women around ovulation there was like and overall i believe if i remember correctly uh, the women who were cycling naturally made about 83 dollars more per shift (laughs) overall
1: Yeah. yeah yeah <laughs> when I read that section i thought man maybe that's why i was bad at getting boyfriends in college cause I'm on the plot i'll be my new excuse <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll never know because it's such a strange area of research and so interesting to think about but i think you know regardless of all the little specific details around it what we know is that it is changing how we smell to others and how we perceive the scent of others and that is that is outside of our ability to reproduce and so it shows us like this is really messing with something like the the thought can you imagine the thought of this drug could actually make me choose a different partner that just makes leaves me feeling unsettled
1: yeah and i think it's such a good i mean it seems like the one of the big barriers that and one of the the things that you're trying to bring light to is that um and and what we talk about too with midwifery and birth here at is. You know, like, the body is not a machine, like you said. Like, we can't separate out all these components. Like, the way that our brain and nose works is connected to the hormones that our body is creating or not creating. And um, just the idea that everything is connected and interconnected is um, so con- runs so contrary to, you know, the body as machine kind of technocratic medical paradigm. So, yeah, it's amazing work that you're doing. Um, I had a question for you that I think piggybacks nicely off of this, which is that, um, let's see, how do I want to phrase it? Just that we're, we're talking about like a lack of transparency, obviously, around what can potentially come up with birth control. And I guess I could do a tiny version of my story in case people are interested. Um, like I mentioned, fertility awareness is, was kind of the way I got in tr- in, into in the world of alternative health, um, which I don't really like that term, but I can't think of a better one right this moment. Um, And sort of like holistic living and, and, you know, self healing and herbalism. And like, it was just the way that I I got into it Um, because when I was 15, I went on birth control. Um, My mom was very um, adamant and we've had lots of conversations now. She feels bad about this in retrospect. I don't blame her at all. She really didn't want me to get pregnant. And so I went on birth control when I was 15, um, which was, we both were happy about. Um, But I went in for my three-month checkup that they like to do to make sure you're handling the new drug, you know, as they would like. And they were doing my other vital signs, right? And my blood pressure had gone from being normal to like stroke level. Wow at age 15 as a very athletic healthy in other ways dancer um ex-gymnast so I think my blood pressure at that checkup was 180 over 120 and they said oh we can't give you any more birth control because obviously you're responding badly to this so you're gonna have to go see your regular nurse practitioner i had gone to like through the county program um to get it for cheaper or something I don't know why we did it that way but um so you you need to make an appointment right now you don't get any more birth control go see your nurse practitioner that you usually see and so i think i saw her within a day or two and instead of saying you shouldn't be on birth control they said we'll switch it to a different kind that maybe you'll tolerate better and we'll put you on blood pressure medication at age 15.
0: (laughs) they did not put you on blood pressure medication at age 15 holy cow
1: yeah Um, so that, you know, was my, that was how it started. And then around the time I went to college, a few years later, I I started college at 17. Um, over the course of the years that I was there, I kept trying to get off the blood pressure medicine, off the birth control, tried everything, you know, I did the ring, I did the depo shot was my last thing I tried. I tried a couple other versions of the pill, um, and eventually through all of my searching found fertility awareness and said, I'm going to try this. And um, we have a book coming out in the spring. And I talked about this just for a little bit in the book, in my notes that I have now from seeing the, this group on campus, like the campus health clinic, they had written down that I had very firm beliefs about what I would and would not do because I said, I really don't want to take birth control anymore. I think it's killing me. <laughs> and so um, they were not supportive at all. Um, And they were really worried about me going off birth control, thinking I was going to get pregnant. Um, And they referred me to like a Catholic church in town to learn more. That was their best suggestion. And they really didn't recommend it. Um, But so long story short, I eventually did go off birth control completely and my blood pressure never really went totally back to normal. So it's something that I've had to struggle with since I was 15. I'm 30 now. Um, And, you know, I'm in my second pregnancy and it's, definitely made my life much more challenging but on the other hand I'm really grateful because it was the way that I started getting interested in like how do I approach this in a different way and learning about herbs to help my blood pressure and and all of those things so that was my long short version of the story um and leads into the question about this lack of transparency so like how do you I'm I'm sure you think about this more than I do um what are your thoughts around, like, how do we get providers to be more transparent? Um, I think you talked in your book a little bit about how they sort of approach this generally um, around terms of effectiveness is kind of, like, their main concern. Um, and then on the flip side, if we can't control that, like, how do we help get this information into the hands of women so that, you know, that we don't have to rely on providers to be more transparent if they're not going to be ever
0: yeah it's a big question i don't know if i have an answer i know that i so for instance one of my colleagues uh, dr marguerite duane i quote her a couple times in the book she runs an organization uh facts fertility and i'm gonna brutalize the title um Fertility awareness collaborative to teach the science, I think it is. I think, Mm -hmm. I think I did okay. Uh, But so I remember speaking, you know, with her, because every time I get my hands on a medical doctor, you know, (laughs) I want to know, I want to know what is it that you learn in med school? Mm Because I, uh, part of my motivation, you know, whenever I get an opportunity to talk to a doctor, I just want some insight, you know, because you see the proof is in the pudding. I've spoken to, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of women over the years, and they share their experiences. And it's it's not every woman that has a negative experience. And it doesn't even necessarily mean that it's negative. But most of the women that I've spoken to over the years, if they're bringing up fertility awareness to their practitioners, it's often not encouraged. Uh, so there's that. It's uh, the hormonal birth control is typically pushed for everything, every issue that can possibly arise. And I've experienced that both personally and professionally. And so... Uh, In terms of, I think the first step is understanding. So my understanding from my interviews with doctors is that in medical school, doctors are taught about the menstrual cycle and they're taught about it in a way that reflects our understanding of it. They're taught about basically, you know, even though it's incorrect, they're taught that all menstrual cycles are 28 days. Ovulation always happens on day 14 and basically any change or deviation from that uh, then all they learn about all the different pathologies but essentially you know the solution to the pathology is the hormonal birth control for basically all of them and when I asked about how doctors in some of my interviews when I asked uh some of my you know doctor interviewees what they were taught about the side effects uh for birth control I mean they're taught about the life um threatening side effects you know such as stroke but it's often in such a way that uh you know yes, these happen, but really we want to identify women that have specific risk factors for this. So it's not necessarily taught like we have to worry about every 15-year-old girl. It's more like if you, she's over 35 and if she smokes or if she has a you know blood clot disorder or whatever, then she's at an increased risk. So we want to identify her. And then the, the solution is to put her on a different type of birth control. So to know how to prescribe so that you know Maybe she should be on this type, or maybe she shouldn't be on, like maybe she needs to be on a type that doesn't contain estrogen. But Mm -hmm. it's, again, it's not from the perspective that I'm coming from, which is that the menstrual cycle is a normal and natural, healthy part of being a woman. It's a sign of health, it's a vital sign that we can monitor.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Suppressing the cycle is bad. Like it's not, this is not the same perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in my conversations, for example, with my colleague, uh, Dr. Marguerite Duane, I mean, she started her organization because she is a medical doctor. She saw a need for it. She's done surveys of doctors. The majority of doctors are not taught anything really about fertility awareness. It's lumped in with the Rhythm Method. So they're not aware that it is an effective um, natural option for women. Uh, Because if if you lump it in with the Rhythm Method and believe that it's, you know, at best 70% effective, then you really, it's not really, you can't really consider it legitimate. So they're not taught you know, this, and shown the science about specific types of fertility awareness-based methods that are up to 99.4% effective and that it's not the rhythm method, that it's different. Um, and so in terms of uh, your original question about how could we improve transparency, I think ultimately uh, it, what she's doing is targeting uh, students, medical students. So before you're a full-blown doctor <laughs> and have started your practice and have really become firm and sol- solid in your belief system, at that point is a good opportunity to to teach, to teach about fertility awareness, to teach about the effectiveness and to try to uh, change the narrative around the menstrual cycle as being irrelevant unless you're trying to have kids and, you know, and do that. Your your other question around what as women can we do so that we don't necessarily have to, you know, rely on our providers, we have to talk about this, we have to demand better, we have to... uh, if you if you are if you have concerns about birth control and your you, your doctor is either dismissing them or not taking them seriously, like for instance, if you're on birth control and you have side effects, <laughs> uh, your blood pressure goes way up, you start feeling depressed and anxious, you start having panic attacks, you have painful sex, you have low libido, you know all of like if you actually legitimately have side effects and you go to your practitioner or recurrent yeast infections or whatever the case and your practitioner is basically like oh it couldn't be that and those are such common that the medical gaslighting example such common mm-hmm. reactions so many women experience find a new provider so you know we have to as women start advocating for the care that we need we have to demand better Um, we have to understand where our practitioners are coming from. You can't go to a medical doctor who's classically trained and expect them to give you nutrition advice because they didn't go to nutrition school. So we have to really start to understand, like, what services do medical doctors provide? What services do midwives provide? What services do naturopathic doctors provide, acupuncturists? And start to recognize that for women's issues, when we want to get to the root of our problems – we have to go to someone who is trained in a root cause type of philosophy where we're actually looking to see what could be the, the, the underlying problem. If you're going to a practitioner who is trained to provide hormonal birth control for irregular periods, painful periods, anything periods, then that's what you're going to get when you go there.
1: Yeah, so just being more knowledgeable about the, the different kinds of practitioners and I really liked the list you had at one point in there of the many different members that could be part of your team. Um, cause I feel like so many people don't realize that, that that could be the, you know, part of their answer is just finding people who have different perspectives. Um, like you said, finding the root cause instead of being like, Oh no, you have high blood pressure. We'll put you on blood pressure medicine too then, you know? Um, yeah. So. Well, and
0: that is a, that's a situation where, like, that specific situation obviously doesn't happen to every woman, but the, the kind of, the trend of, like, you take birth control and then it causes a side effect, whether that be high blood pressure, mm-hmm. recurrent yeast infections, depression, yeah. mm-hmm. then, so, for example, young women, uh, teenagers who take birth control are more likely to be on antidepressants. Well, duh, we talked about um, some of the different ways that uh, so there's a few specific ways that the the pill alters mood and um, makes you more susceptible to depression. We talked about how it dramatically reduces testosterone and low testosterone is associated with an increased risk of uh, depressive symptoms. But in addition to that, some of the nutrient depletion, so vitamin B6 in particular, uh, the pill depletes vitamin B6 at a ridiculously high rate. And so in order to, in order to offset the deficiency of vitamin B6 caused by birth control you would have to take about 4000 times the RDA <laughs> yeah so it's 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 pretty pronounced with vitamin B6 i feel like vitamin B6 is the most obvious significant like you can't let the participants take a multivitamin to to make it look better because there's just too much, and vitamin B6 is is crucial for tryptophan metabolism, which is associated with our serotonin production, which is associated with mood, and so um, it affects each woman differently. But some women go on to develop panic attacks, some women just experience um, depressive symptoms, some women report just a general feeling of flatness, others report a, a significant loss of energy they just don't feel like themselves Uh, and so it's important to know that not because no one should ever use it but because if you for example in your case like if you are put on it and then you develop high blood pressure at some point you know in my opinion if we know that this medication can be associated with these effects it would be ethically responsible to say well we just put you on this let's take you off of it for a couple of months to see you know like if it could be if it could be related instead of opting to put you on something different. You know, I just, I don't understand the logic of, you know, it's so important that we prevent pregnancy that we're going to just give it to you regardless of the side effects. I mean, Mm -hmm. come on.
1: Totally. Um, You know, I think part of it, and I think I had written this down as something maybe we could talk about, but you know, in my case, and I think in a lot of people's cases, especially with youth, you know, like young Teenagers, it's so much a part, it's so intertwined with like the sex phobic, like anti sex cultural stuff we have going on. Cause, like, I think it was just too uh, horrifying, perhaps, to this nurse practitioner or my parents or whatever to be like, <laughs> if she goes off the birth control, now we have to talk about sex more and like are you having sex and what can we do to make sure that you do that safely and don't get pregnant for a couple months? Like, which to me, I have a daughter who's four and a half. Um, like, I, I feel like I'm raising her in a way in such a way that like, that won't be a weird conversation. That'll be like, Oh, if she were to choose to go on birth control, which I would (coughs) personally be appalled, but would try to be supportive. (laughs) (laughs) I would navigate that part. But if we got to the point where she was, you know, on it and stuff was going on, like that would just be a conversation that we would have like, Hey, this is, this is really harming your body. Let's think of some other ways, which hopefully we won't get to that point. Cause she already knows so much about the cycle and is already learning and uh, probably knows more than a lot of people about birth and that. So, um, yeah. So I guess that was a question I had for you is, um, what have you seen like be the barriers in terms of, like, bo- basic body literacy, and and helping people get more educated about fertility awareness specifically?
0: Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I would say that the number, and I don't know if, but in in the moment, I feel like it it, it resonates with me to say that the number one barrier is education, the lack of education, and it's It's what you mentioned this the discomfort around talking about it fully, actually talking about it. A friend of mine, I was having an interesting conversation with um, one of my best friends last night. We talked for a really long time and talked about a bunch of different stuff, but one of the things that came up, because I'd never thought about it this way. So we were talking about back in junior high the sex ed that we got, and she's like she said to me, she's like, you know, I had a lot of guy friends. So we you know, basically they learn how to ejaculate um, and we learn that we need to be really scared about getting pregnant. And I'm, I had to like ask her a couple of times, I mean, I was like, what do you mean they learn how to ejaculate? Like, like, so I remember I was like, kind of like, cause I'd never thought about it that way, but yeah. in their sex ed class, they're taught about wet dreams and they're taught about, um, you know, this whole situation of having erections in right. class. Cause anyone who went through junior high knows that, that phase, Um, of puberty when the boys start to have to like actively figure out how they're going to hide their erections in class. So in the, they're not necessarily talk that about I mean, we're not in a super sex positive. Well, at least when I was growing, it wasn't super sex positive. We were like talking about pleasure and how that's good and you know, all that. But it was more, at least for them, it was focused on how to manage this like random penis ejaculation situation that was happening. So for men, it was actually like, from her it was such an interesting way that she framed it which is why i'm talking about it today but it was like even though we're not sex positive the the education for men was still around their ejaculation and essentially orgasm and mm. how to like not met, like had not i don't know how to sort this out and how they can kind of figure out how to navigate that the conversation about orgasm And pleasure is 100% absent Mm. (laughs) in the, you know, so even though it could be better for the boys, it's completely absent for the girls. And the focus is literally on this random terror. Like you, for most of the women that I've spoken to and for myself as well, I was taught that, you know, pregnancy can happen on any day of the cycle. There's no safe days. And I left that conversation as a young woman terrified that if I ever had sex with another human being, 100% guaranteed, I would be pregnant that day, probably within the hour. (laughs) So pregnant, right? And so that really changed it when you when we're and, and, and we weren't really taught why we were given that general, you know, understanding of sperm and egg, but honestly, compared to, you know, You read the book so compared to what like actually happens we are given a a one percent barely window into what's going on and so the fact that we're not told why we're just told that you can get pregnant every day but you're not really told why it leaves it as a mystery and therefore it it predisposes us to just be afraid we're not connected to it we're we don't understand it uh we're terrified of it uh so i mean in terms of why we are not taught and why we don't know and why so many women email me and they say things like, I'm 35 years old, I am 42 years old, and I just learned about this and I'm furious. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've had two kids and I didn't know, like, you just like, you know, um, it's education really. And it, it baffles the mind. So when you actually start to think about it and you think about how this information isn't discussed and isn't part of the education system and then you, if you reflect back to what you did learn in high school and junior high, like I learned a lot of detail about my eyes and my ears, like biology class was, I, I mean, it was real. We learned yeah. about a lot of really significant, complicated processes. And so the reason isn't, there's a deeper reason why we're not taught this. And uh, the only way to, uh, for me personally, as you can tell, I'm not waiting around for the you know, government or the school system to decide this is important, because obviously they haven't decided that it's important yet. The only way that women are going to learn about this and have the opportunity of it is by talking about it, which is and by um, as women us kind of standing together and demanding this to be taught and demanding for our daughters and our sons to to deserve better because it's not just women that need to be taught because that doesn't make any sense because a lot of men go on to I don't know date and marry women and have children with them so I think it's important for all of us to know I agree
1: um I've been invited to do some guest speaking um pretty regularly here in my area with junior high and high schoolers and college students too um and I always like to at least spend a few minutes on this topic. And usually it's enough to like perk people's ears up and hopefully send them down a rabbit hole. But I've been wanting for a long time to um, to figure out how to offer some free community education um, and get people excited about it. I feel like that's one of the barriers that I've seen is just like getting people to think that it's applicable to them once they do realize it's applicable to them, people get really super nerdy about it. And I have two people right now who are like, I'm next in line for the book, like bring it on. Um, you know, so I feel like people get really gung ho once they, once they get going. And like you said, like they, they're usually furious that they weren't taught this. And, um, and so I think there is a shift happening, but it's definitely on my list of things to brainstorm how to, how to make that shift happen faster where I live because yeah, girls and women, and all of us and men deserve so much better. Um, Okay. I have one last piece I want to get to make sure we get to before we have to wrap up. And that was um, just kind of the topic of using fertility awareness. So I guess I can frame the question a little bit Um, in my work as a midwife uh, I'm, I'm doing home births. These are people who are already on the crunchy spectrum, I guess you could call it. Um, but even then I'd say, I don't know if I had to put a percentage on it, but not a huge amount of them are really familiar with fertility awareness. Some of, most of them have maybe heard about it. Um, but most of them were not practicing it before getting pregnant. And so, I'm someone who did practice it, let's see, four years or so before getting pregnant. Um, And so I feel really confident and I have felt confident avoiding pregnancy when I wanted to um, during my postpartum breastfeeding two year journey. I think I got my cycle back at 13 months postpartum, but a lot of the women that I work with, um, you know, they don't have that frame of reference from before pregnancy and, Um, so I'm just curious what kind of, uh, and obviously we, we don't have enough time to really cover it all. So I guess my first plug would be maybe making an appointment with you to talk about this (laughs) would be high on the list of advice again, but just like a basic conversation about, is that something that's doable? Have you seen that work well for people? Um, I have a few clients who are having babies really close together right now (laughs) because they were kind of winging it. Um, They weren't practicing fertility awareness, Um, but, you know, they kind of went into it without a plan and and they're happy about it. But I would really love to feel um, like I could resource people better in terms of, yeah, using fertility (laughs) awareness. I
0: mean, you highlight a really important point, which is that it is – different uh first of all postpartum is a different type of it's it's the same logistical charting but it is different than charting you know when you're cycling naturally normally so when a woman is cycling i mean if we take you through the menstrual cycle the first day of your cycle is the first day of your period the first day where you have flow and then as your period you know Uh, stops as your period comes to an end you typically have a couple of days before you start to see your cervical mucus from a fertility awareness standpoint cervical mucus is the uh, most crucial sign of fertility because it's your mucus that keeps sperm alive for up to five days so as you approach ovulation any day that you observe cervical mucus sometimes it looks like uh, creamy hand lotion Sometimes it looks like clear, stretchy, raw egg whites that you can kind of stretch between your fingers, and some women will just find that, at, you know, as they approach ovulation, as they wipe, they go to the bathroom and wipe. It's like really slippery, mm-hmm. or they feel like they have to wipe a couple times to get it. You know, yeah. Uh, so, however it presents, then women who practice fertility awareness and they become uh, more, you know, experienced monitoring their cervical mucus then they'll see that so you have your period you know you have a couple of days before you start seeing mucus and then you start seeing mucus assuming that your cycles are you know healthy and normal you ovulate you know and then your mucus dries up it goes away and then you get your period about 12 to 14 days later and it repeats and it's not the same uh, you know, ovulation shifts from cycle to cycle. If you have a stressful event or if something's going on, it's it's not uncommon for there to be a shift. We're not robots, as you mentioned. So, uh, there is some fluctuation that is normal in there. But you still have this general pattern of you know, period, ovulation, period, period, ovulation, period. When you're in the postpartum, you mentioned that you got your period back about 13 months postpartum, and it was similar for me in both pregnancies, where um, I, I got a random period around the 9-10 month mark, but I didn't actually get, and then I did, went away again, and then I didn't actually get my regular periods around, around the same time, like roughly. So in the postpartum period, it's almost like you're having one really, really long cycle. Right. So for women who have charting experience, they've, they have that experience of, you know, daily checking for cervical mucus. Uh, your basal body temperature is fairly useless until you actually ovulate. Mm -hmm. so you can't it doesn't help you so you're kind of reduced to this one sign plus your cervical position if you're comfortable checking that Mm -hmm. and so you know for the record fertility awareness is an effective method of birth control when you learn it correctly and you understand how to interpret your fertile signs then it is possible to use fertility awareness successfully postpartum very well Uh, the challenge is for a woman who's never charted before if this is her first you know, for foray into charting, mm-hmm. then my suggestion is for her to actually seek support from a charting instructor because it's a different type of, it's a different period of time, it's a a, a different mm-hmm. circumstance, and there can be certain challenges. So, for some women, when they're breastfeeding, they have more, for lack of a better word, discharge. Some women will produce some degree of mucus uh, every day, and so when you're working with an instructor, you can start to differentiate between what's happening is it arousal fluid triggered by ovulation because or triggered by breastfeeding that was a misspeak because breastfeeding triggers oxytocin production which can cause you to have more arousal fluid etc but that's even me just saying that sounds fairly complicated so uh, I I think that it's important to know that it can work but it is different if a woman has charted before like in your case you had four years of experience in my case I had like (laughs) over 10 so what I when I was in my postpartum, it was fairly straightforward. I just kept checking for mucus every day. And uh, it's important to know that you ovulate before you have your first period. (laughs) And so what you're, you're basically on mucus watch, you're looking for mucus. And when your mucus returns for me, it was very clear, like, Oh, here's the mucus. I'm going to ovulate soon. And so I knew that that was my, you know, even though, but who, like, again, you have to get into the mindset of, it could take four months. It could take three months. It could take six months. It could take 12 months. So you're checking for Mucus every day and okay and charting it and okay with the fact that it could take months before you see it. Uh, So I hope that answers the question.
1: (laughs) No, no, that's, that's really helpful to hear. Um, Yeah. I think that has been the challenge that I've seen with people is just like, it's such a long project and people are often like sleep deprived and tired and maybe forget you know, if they miss this, the first day of, of their fertile mucus, and they have sex that day, because they finally maybe feel like it, because they're getting all the signals from their body, like, hey, it's time to make another baby.
0: Um, well, we talked about like how the how the pheromones change and no. how. So, I mean, when you think about it from that perspective, in general, so outside of the specific signs of fertility, your cervical mucus and your cervical position, when you have just a general understanding of your cycle, and for women who have been charting, I'm sure that you can appreciate this. You know, I recognize that every woman isn't the same, and there is some research to say, oh, you know, it's overrated, this idea that we're more horny around ovulation. But from my experience... You know, my lived experience and my experience working with women, there's something there. So, for a lot of women, they do notice that they're more aroused around that time uh, as they approach ovulation. Estrogen levels are high, mucus is flowing. And also, outside of your control is the fact that your partner is, if there's ever a time that your partner is going to be like all over your situation. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's typically around that time, and it's literally pheromones that's been proven by research and et cetera. And then you also have the lived experience of women. So you know it's kind of that joke of well, we only had sex at what time? Yeah,
1: definitely. Uh, one So you both really wanted to.
0: <laughs> yeah, and w- and if you're aware of that, so that's another level of awareness that can happen as you chart your cycles. So for me. I'm aware of it when I am in that stage, not only do I have the physical, you know, the mucus observations, I am aware that my, I'm aware of the fluctuations in my levels of arousal, for example. So for me having that, like, Oh man, I really want it. Where's my, like, Oh, okay. Let me check for mucus. Like, you know what I mean? Like you kind of have this additional understanding of your body.
1: Yep, That's what I was going to share was that I feel like that's, that was really helpful to me in my postpartum time was Cause I can't say that I probably checked my mucus every day, but I also was in one of those, like, well, if I got pregnant, then okay. You know, kind of places, but um, yeah, it was more like I was, I was relying on some of that inner wisdom that I had developed over the four years of observing how my mood felt and how my yeah level of arousal felt and that sort of thing beyond just the, the three Things, which are great and people need to know about those too but it's cool to notice those other those other pieces so cool yeah i think that was really helpful and um do you have a suggestion for if people are wanting to work with a uh what did you what did your what was your special oh, word Fertility awareness
0: educators. Educator I, would, I would say that i mean especially we're in an interesting time now where periods are getting a lot of press and a lot of women are really pissed off that we weren't taught this so a lot of women are jumping into the like menstrual cycle space and not all of them are trained and certified so I would say you know it's important if you're seriously considering using fertility awareness, especially as birth control. The, the research that has been done, you know, I, I mentioned a study that sh- uh, the, the results of the study were 99.4% effectiveness. They were looking at the symptothermal method, meaning they were looking at the combination of cervical mucus, cervical position observations, plus uh, basal body temperature. Uh, but these women in the study were trained by educators in a specific method, and so when you're working with someone who's been certified and trained in my so for instance in my experience in my training and I went through training on two separate occasions but in my training uh what I learned and just like any other profession so you don't see a doctor who's basically had an illness once and then they're a doctor they learn about all these different things so they're able to treat um and support individuals who have uh issues that date they didn't. When you have a woman who has charted her own cycle and is really enthusiastic and starts teaching, she's only seen her cycle. And often we're so tempted to think everyone's cycle is going to be like theirs. So it's important to, when you're looking for an educator, to find someone who is certified. And so there is an association of fertility awareness professionals that certify um, individuals that have gone through the training. And at least that gives you some peace of mind. Like this person, because it is a profession and it's not, although it, it seems like it's really simple, there's a lot of nuances to it. And because the menstrual cycle is a vital sign, you know, a lot of women coming to you do have different challenges and issues and, uh, you know, one of my roles when I'm working with clients is to help them identify it. So to, for them, if they're seeing certain things in their cycle, to help them identify what that could be and support them in terms of getting married with the the correct support that they need to address those issues so Mm uh so yeah that would be my 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 main suggestion to really look for someone who's certified someone who's experienced someone who's trained um I mean of course I've had a lot of different programs and I've been running them for a long time but I recognize I mean some a lot of women really like the opportunity to work with someone in their local area Mm -hmm. uh so also kind of looking to see what's available, what organizations teach, uh, and maybe you'll you'll be able to see somebody locally in your in your area.
1: Awesome. Well, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Anything I missed? I had like a million more
0: questions, but I'm <laughs> Uh, Well, this was a lot of fun. Um, I I really liked your questions. This was a really nice conversation. And I would invite the listeners, I mean, if you are, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you are interested more to learn about the vital sign aspect, you can actually get the first chapter of The Fifth Vital Sign for free over at Mm thefifthvitalsignbook.com. And otherwise, you know, if you really want to nerd out with me, um, over a thousand research citations, like I said, I was really fascinated by the research and one of the one of my goals with the book because I'm I feel generally just you know I feel the collective pissed offness about not being educated about these things and so for me I didn't want to create like a fluff piece of oh Lisa's opinion is this I wanted to try to make some of that research more accessible yeah. uh, because you know, who has time to go through 2000 research studies and compose it? Like, you know, I wanted to create that resource so that we can kind of elevate our own understanding and our knowledge of these issues as women so that we can feel more empowered when we're going into our doctor's office, feel like when we choose fertility awareness and the doctor saying it's not effective, at least you can have a solid resource and feel more confident in the fact that, no, 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 there is research that shows that, you know, this method is effective. It kind of goes back to the idea that as women, what you were mentioning, like we want to, we're uncomfortable talking about it. Uh, It's almost as though they think if they tell us about it, that either it's too complicated for us or we won't be able to do it right. So in all of the years that I've taught women to chart their cycles, I recognize that not every woman is going to want to use fertility awareness for birth control. It's not the right method for everybody, but for the women who want it, like you and me, the women who chose it, who it really resonated with us, we're motivated and we're really smart. And at the end of the day, even though it's, there's nuances and there's lots of complexities, every woman that I've worked with she really starts to get it by the second cycle you know if I'm working with a client by the time we're in cycle two together cycle three together they still have questions and they still have little concerns around you know some of the health aspects but ultimately the charting we get it we're smart we can do it (laughs) we got this so if you're motivated and if you want to do it you can do it and it is effective
1: yeah, that's amazing. Okay, that's an amazing spot to to end on, because um, that was certainly one of the things I wanted to get to too. Was just the idea that, you know, I think that that's one of the barriers is that the the system. I guess if we're gonna. <laughs>
0: Women are too stupid to do it. Yeah. We can't tell them. We need to pat them on the head and be like, no, you need to take this pill because, you know, this would involve you, you know, writing things down and like <laughs> observing things and
1: your brain being a scientist, you know, yeah.
0: and it's not rocket science, literally. And the great thing too, as you've experienced with mm-hmm. all of your charting experience is that it is a cycle. and so it does continue happening and uh, what I always say is you can't predict ovulation because we're not robots and it doesn't always happen on the same day of the cycle but you start to get a sense of you know I have my period and then you know I start seeing cervical mucus and I tend to have cervical mucus for a certain number of days before I ovulate Mm -hmm. and then my period usually comes a certain number of days after that so it's a cycle so you get to practice cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle and develop those skills and gain that confidence. And here I am, you know, almost 20 years in and I have never had an unplanned pregnancy. My two boys were highly planned, like outrageously planned. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Um, and then your website is fertilityfriday.com, right? For people to go look at.
0: Yes. And then if anyone wants to Tune into the podcast, whatever your favorite podcast player is. If you type in "Fertility Friday" and search for it, I will pop up.
1: And you have like over two hundred episodes. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, where I'm almost, I'm I'm about to. This week I released two forty nine, but next week I released two fifty. So it's we're we're at two fifty, which is a lot of episodes.
1: A lot of good content, and then the book <laughs> again is called "The Seth vital. You can get it on Amazon and also through your site. Is that right?
0: Um. Well. Amazon is the main, the main yeah. venue. And then the ebook is available in different cool. retailers.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you so very much for joining me. This was really fun. Um, and for people listening, if you want to learn more about Indie Birth and haven't been to our website somehow, it's IndieBirth.org. And uh, Marin and I both have our own podcast. There's a huge podcast archive for you to check out. Um, and we both are available by email. You can email us at Margo at IndieBirth.org and Maren at if you want to get in touch and if you have any questions or anything. So um, thanks so much for listening and until next time.